It is said to dwell below with the saints we know. Oh, that is glory. No, I'm, I'm, I just blew it. I just ruined the first thing. No, it said this. To dwell above with the saints we love, that will be glory. But to dwell below with the saints we know, that's quite a different story. Now, now that I've blown the first line of the message, Psalm 133.1 says, How sweet it is when the brothers dwell together in unity. And when God's family gets on together, it's super sweet. And the fellowship is real and tangible and encouraging. The open secret is that some churches are full of splintered relationships and division. It's like we're reenacting episodes of 1 Corinthians. Divided we sit. In the first century, in the city of Rome, which is where we are this morning in the book of Romans, there was one issue that was really dividing the people. The pagan city of Rome was full of idolatry, not unlike our age, and Augustine's right to suggest that our hearts are idol factories. trying to get a rabbit's foot of good luck for this or a charm for this, and I hope this turns out well, so i got to get a right portent. They would grab a hold of idols, and they would offer sacrifices to them, including meat sacrifices at the front door of the temple for the idol worship. Now, at the back door, uh, they were entrepreneurial. Uh, At the back door, of course, they cut up the meat, and they sold it out the back door. And you could get good cuts of meat at good prices. And so people would frequent these meat markets that in the front were an idol worshiping center. In the back was a meat market. Into this environment comes this message about Jesus Christ. God can be known. God has communicated himself through his son, Jesus Christ. He died on the cross for our sins, according to the scriptures. He was buried. And the third day he rose again. And in believing in him, our sins can be forgiven. In believing in him, we can come to have hope and have life. And many of these pagans in Rome said, yes, that sounds great. I want peace with God through Jesus Christ. I want to give him my guilt and my shame. And I want to take up forgiveness and life and the sweetness of rightly relating to God. I want Jesus. Some of them had been in bondage to this idolatry. A rabbit foot for this. Let's sacrifice down on Main Street and let's go to Third Street and let's offer another sacrifice. I've got to get my financial life taken care of. I've got to get my health life taken care of. We've got to cover all the idolatrous bases. And so when they came to follow Jesus, they didn't want anything to do with buying the meat out the back door. But then you had others who had nothing to do with such idolatry but they were sinful, as we all are, and estranged from God, and they came to place their faith in Christ. 
And they were pinching pennies just like us and trying to put their budget together. And for them to get some well-marbled porterhouse out the back door of the idle place, that was okay, man. That was just a nice chunk of meat. So they'd go buy a chunk of meat and put it in their cart and be wheeling down the street. And they'd see another friend from church and say, hey, friend, how you doing? And they'd, they'd look aghast, you know. What'd you do? I, I just bought, the, yeah, I got some well-marbled porterhouse. We're going to have a nice meal tonight at our house. Where'd you get it? I got it over there. And they divided over whether or not it was right to buy that meat. And it wasn't a small division. They took sides. And it was like, we are the side that doesn't eat the meat. And we're more holy than you. And on the other side, it was, we are the side that has given up long ago that legalism. We love the grace of God. And we love that meat. That, it's a good price, too. So we're going to keep eating the meat. We got meat. We don't eat meat. We, you know, back and forth. Division. Division. So Paul writes it to face it. Now, here we are living in our age. Now, the last time I looked, that's not an issue for us. Nobody's buying meat out the back of the factory. But if you think this chapter is not for us, let me help you. Let me disabuse you of that thought. The threat of being divided over different conviction is very much real and alive and in play at Calvary Baptist Church and other gospel churches like ours. Followers of Jesus have different convictions about everything, about engaging culture and participating in culture and at what level, about drinking. I've told you before, I'm a teetotaler. We raise children, we're around our grandchildren. I don't want them to be beset. I had two alcoholic grandfathers. I don't drink. Getting drunk is sinful. I don't encourage you to drink. I don't trust my own foolishness. Uh, I don't want to introduce things that could begin to control me into my body. So I don't do that. Some drink, some don't. Some go to the theater, some don't. Some are into political engagement, some are not. Worship style, some have moral categories for worship style. It's better be like this from this person. What about the Sabbath and what we're supposed to do with the Sabbath? By the way, when is the Sabbath? And what day is the special day to rest? The use of money and what we're to use our money on. Dress and dress style and fashion. Church strategy. Preaching styles. Someone has defined preaching as a classic definition is truth poured through human personality. Now, I've never listened to two preachers preach exactly the same. Now, some have moral categories in the kind of preaching you're supposed to have. You, 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 Eric, you open, you go one word, then to the next word, then to the next word, then to the next word. And if you don't preach like that, you're, 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 you're not preaching. And then, uh, by the way, um, my preaching is what it is. I, I, I love to do it probably too much. Yeah, yeah. If we go beyond, you know, 3.30, you usually say, yeah, I think that's too much, Eric, you know. But um, uh, my preaching is what it is. Some Sundays I leave with a sense, oh, Lord, in your kindness, that was useful, I sense. Other Sundays it's like, you know, I want to put a sheet over my head and walk to my car and go back, you know, and just not talk to anybody for about three days and wear it out, you know. And, and, and through the week in preparation, 
I'll, I'll, I use illustrations. Some believe you shouldn't use illustrations in preaching. By the way, Jesus told a couple stories. But I realize not all my stories are good. There's some stories that I conceive of on Wednesday that I think, man, that's, gonna be, that's, that's just going to be it. That's going to run after their hearts. You know, it, I'll get to Sunday and thought, why, why did I think that on Wednesday? That, that, that did not come out like I thought it was going to come out. You know, I had my preaching prof say, look, it's, it's, it's like gestating a baby. When it's born, it's yours. You have to own it. You can't look down and say, oh, that's ugly. I don't, I don't want that. You know, it, it's, it's yours. You did it. You, you got to own it. And, and so here we are. Uh, and, and sometimes uh, my stories are too long and sometimes they, uh, uh, they don't illustrate the point. Once in a while, it'll hit right on the point and God will use it and move your life. I, I try to build a window through which to look, see how to live the truth. Next week, we'll talk a little bit more, that phrase, the encouragement of the scriptures, on how we use the Bible at Calvary. But that's, that's next week. Uh, you, you know, it's interesting. Uh, Spurgeon preached on phrases. He never went through a book. He, he would just pick out a phrase 150 years ago in England, and it was powerful stuff. But he, he never went, he just picked out phrases. Uh, my f- favorite sermon, D.L. Moody, is on, is called Tekel. Uh, in 1878 in Cleveland, he preached this message on uh, many, many tekel you farson, and he preached on tekel. That was his message. And it's the word that means weighed. And he said, we've all been weighed, and the balance is not good. We need Jesus. But he preached on tekel, uh, one word. Uh, and um, so some people have categories for, for that, and uh, they, they, they divide over the categories uh, church leadership, how to, how to do church leadership. For some, there's strict moral categories. You've got to do it this way. If you're not there, you know, you're, you're, you're not doing it right. Uh, then um, approaches to ministry, approaches to evangelism. You know, for, for, for some, if you're not Ray Comfort, you know, you're, you're, you're trash. Uh, for others, if you're Ray Comfort, you know, what's wrong with you? You know, and then people have different convictions about how you're supposed to do what you're supposed to do. Uh, movies, streaming, what you're supposed to read, what you're not supposed to read, levels of involvement with kids' sports, the amount of money you spend on uh, travel teams. There's, there's difference of opinion. There's a host of other issues. The Bible warns against allowing difference of conviction to rip a church apart. In fact, Romans 14 takes dead aim at destructive tendencies that tear a church apart. We've already looked at Romans 14, 1 through 12. This morning, we're going to look at 13 through 22. Since we haven't been here in the book of Romans, since the second week of Romans, I want to read the whole chapter to you. It's my privilege to do that this morning. Romans 14. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him. But not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. And let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. For God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls. And he will be upheld for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor 
of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. That's what we've studied so far. The next verses, 13 through 23, these 11, are new verses for us this morning. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it is unclean. For if your brother is grieved, By what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then, let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It's good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Hear the word of the Lord. I'll go three different directions this morning. First, the stakes are very high, and Paul makes that very clear. This is not something of no small consequence. We'll consider it together. Secondly, tactically, how do we decide how to live and how do we view others who share different convictions about how to live? Finally, it takes a lifetime to develop a mature conscience. What kind of shape are we in this morning? Let's go those three directions. First, in God's family, There is a lot at stake as we choose how to live. This passage gets sober quickly in identifying threats that we face that disturb the peace in God's family. He identifies two threats. Number one, we can put impediments in the way of others. Look at verse 13. Look at verse 21. Now, this is a, a, it seems to me, uh, with such frequency, it's, it's almost in some sense sport in God's family to pass judgment on others. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way 
of a brother. Look at verse 21. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The Bible is clear. It is possible for us to order our lives in a way that messes up other people's lives. He uses the term stumbling block in verse 13. He uses the term hindrance. Verse 21, he says, causes your brother to stumble. I mean, what do we want on our tombstones? Hindrance. Stumbling blocker. Cause of brother stumbling. My dad worked in a UAW shop, auto workers. He was a manager. From time to time, they would go on strike. And once in a while, it got nasty. He would go to work every day while they were on strike. They were there at the gates, and they would block them out, then block them in. They had to strategize, okay, which gate are we going to go out and leave? And, and uh, so they'd have these meetings late in the afternoon. All right, you know, go out. Gate B6, nobody will think we're going there. So they had all assembled in the line, and suddenly, boom, they get the B6, the gate would open, and they didn't have enough volunteers from the UAW to, to be at B6, so they'd, they'd get out, and, you know, it were, well, the union kind of got upset that they were, were uh, outwitting them. So uh, they, they realized that they had to go, in getting out, eventually go under this uh, overpass to get on, and so what they did, they stationed a couple guys up there, and they had these, uh, I, I don't know what, what they were. They, they were tack nails of some sort that would puncture your tire. And so as soon as they got in the line and strategized to go out that gate and headed toward it, you know, they, they'd pour the nails out, and the managers drove over the nails, and a few got, you know, flat tires. Uh, you say, well, that's awful. Well, no, Romans 14 is talking about what's awful. It's that we can order our lives in a way that we become a hindrance. Note to self, we don't want to do this. We don't want to go there. Now, the second threat is this. We can destroy the work of God in a person's life. Now, I'll tell you, the rheostats, it gets intense. Notice the language that's used. Stumbling block, hindrance. Now we gen it up to the word destroy, which is used twice. Did you note it in the text? Look at verse 14. Do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. Look at verse 20. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. What? We can order our lives with convictions that can not only hinder or obstruct, but destroy. And he doesn't use just one word. That's not the same word used twice, appearing as the English word. He uses two different words for destruction. Describing all the more tragic, this circumstance. Verse 15, the brother is grieved. This language comes as a bit of a warning. He tells him in verse 16, don't let your solid testimony be turned out to be something evil because of the choices you have made. So do not let what you regard as good to be spoken of as evil. Destroy. I watched a man come to faith in Christ. He was into adulthood, cruising through life, not paying up attention at all to his soul and to the brevity of life and that at the end of his life he would have to stand before God and give an account for what he had done with his son Jesus Christ and a friend began to talk to him about Jesus 
And he began to reflect upon his life and God awakened in his heart a knowledge of sin. And he came to place his faith in Jesus Christ and joyfully began to follow Jesus. We all loved him and were trying to encourage him. And he took off like a wild weed in growth. And he loved to laugh and he was a lot of fun to be around. And he was kind of a gregarious magnet person. And, and I can hear his laughter even this morning. Uh, probably too early, he was asked to uh, undertake some leadership roles at church. Now, I love the church. I'm pouring my life into God's family, and I, I love it. Um, at this point, given the privileges of experience that God has given me, I understand that the church is not perfect. And the church has all things wonderful, weird, disconcerting, and disappointing altogether. And what happens when you get around the disconcerting and the disappointing is what God is doing is he's using that to show us our own heart. Because I'll think, what's wrong with that person? Look at that. What's wrong with them? And God just puts his arm around me and he says, hey, what's wrong with you to look at them and ask what's wrong with them? Do you think you're better than them? And he shows me the massive amounts of pride in my heart and my need to humble myself and realize we're all on the way. We're all developing, growing toward the measure, the stature, the fullness of Christ. Sure, we're all not in the same place, but he who has begun a good work in us is performing it until the day of Jesus Christ. But I, by what this man saw, it began to put out his fire for Jesus, and I watched him fade. Looking back, I thought of him this week because he was hindered by what he saw in other people's lives. In God's family, there's a lot at stake as we choose how to live. Within Eric, how are we to view others whose conscience is in a different place than ours? You've heard the quote, and I'll try to say this one right so I don't mess it up. Look as I look. Do as I do. Then, and only then, I'll have fellowship with you. You ever watch some who were suspicious of everybody else that didn't cross all the T's and dot all the I's exactly like they did? Deviations were noted, and it was cause for separation. I want to say two things here. Number one, we are to love these brothers and sisters by considering their convictions. Look at verse 15. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, remember the issue, you're eating well marbled porterhouse, and God saved him out of a tragic life of trusting in the idols to be his salvation, and he wanted nothing to do with that meat that he used to offer the idols in trusting that that was going to help him have good luck and get on better and be a better omen for him. And so he, he quit being that way and despise that meat that was sold out the back door. For if your brother's grieved by what you eat, you're no longer walking in love. Paul is saying that our disposition toward each other is to be so characterized by love and not passing judgment. Remember that attitude that I described a moment ago, what, what's wrong with you? That it's to be so characterized by love 
if your brothers grieve by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love, that I relate to you, you relate to me on the basis of the benefit of the doubt and love covering the differences in convictions that we have. We recognize that their convictions are not all well-placed. I appreciate Paul's honesty. He says in verse 14, I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it's unclean. You say, Eric, what in the world is that? Well, it's this. Paul knew that that well-marbled porterhouse wasn't sinful. What it was was well-marbled porterhouse. And what distinguished it was that the person thought that it was bad. But Paul said, I know it's not bad. That's good meat. But to the person who's been saved out of that, it's not good meat. To them, it's bad. So don't force that on their conscience. Give them room to develop and move forward. But I know that there's nothing wrong with that meat. It is what they are ascribing to that meat. Now, the other thing that's interesting is we are dealing... Now, I'll tell you what, Eric, here's my explanation. Those people that are silly, they just do not know the Lord. That's their problem. If they only knew the Lord, then they wouldn't be silly about convictions like that. Notice how many times he uses the term brother. Did you listen to the verse that said, these are ones for whom Christ died? These are family members. And Paul self-evidently affirms the fact that in God's wonderful family, people are going to have different convictions that can give rise to separation if we are not walking in love toward one another. These are family members. Walk in love toward them. Talking about brothers. These are ones for whom Christ died. That's his language in verse 15. We treat them like family. And that's about tender consideration. These are clear statements that Christians will differ on some convictions and still be family. John Stott has said, Did Christ love them enough to die for them? And shall we not love them enough from refraining from wounding their conscience through the use of our freedom. Think of what Paul said elsewhere when he said, all things are lawful, but not all things are expedient. That fits right here. It is a loving gesture to accept a person's conviction that is different than ours. Now, don't expect me to own your conviction there's a difference between owning the conviction and accepting the conviction and giving room for the conviction. Now, underneath this point, secondly, we are to pursue what makes for peace and encouragement. Pursue what makes for peace and encouragement. Notice the two values that are heralded in verses 17, 18, and 19. In 19, it's peace and for mutual upbuilding. Pursue peace and for mutual Upbuilding. What drives us? What are we to pursue? Paul said, in our relatedness with each other, let's pursue two things. Number one, peace with each other. 
Number two, building each other up. The contrary notion there is tearing each other's down. How much rancor and separation and division could be avoided if we just work for those two things? Peace and mutual upbuilding. Now, he uses, he doesn't pull any punches with the language he uses here. Look at 1413. He uses the word never, which is used sparingly and judiciously in Scripture. Never. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide, here's the term, never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. Look at verse 21. He uses the unequivocal term anything it is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble now Paul makes the point that we are making the wrong issues the wrong issues verse 17 he said look it's not food it's not food it's the kingdom of God is not about food and arguing over who's eating the right food. But it's about righteousness, peace, joy in the Holy Ghost. Righteousness, peace, joy in the Holy Spirit. That's what defines the kingdom of God. Now, of course, the reader asks in reading verse 17, is he talking about the subjective existential experience of righteousness, peace, joy in the Holy Spirit. That there, When we are given the gift of righteousness, we just had Christmas, we opened a few gifts. You open the gift of righteousness given when you believe in Jesus Christ and you've laid hold of something that you can't have unless you believe. And it's so glorious because you realize you have been handed a standing before God that is pure. That is holy, but it's not our holiness. It's Jesus' holiness that's been given to us when we believe in Jesus. So rather than standing guilty and condemned before a God who is holy, we stand before this God accepted in the gift of righteousness. That is something to be experienced and felt the Haven Arrest Quartet used to sing a song that had this line, clean before the Lord I stand. That's something. That's an experience that is glorious. Righteousness, peace. To be always looking over your shoulder, wondering when the Grim Reaper is going to take you down or when, when your sin is going to be found out or who's going to know who you really are. How about giving that up and just having peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ? Therefore, being declared righteous by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. No looking over our shoulders. We don't have to. It's all been resolved. Jesus said at the cross, it is finished. Who in the room doesn't have a past that is imperfect? All the experience of this peace. And then joy. The joy of the Lord is our strength. Knowing that uh, the one who knows us most loves us best knowing that the one who knows the most about our sin, my sin, is the one who has forgiven me in Christ. And we've been brought to a joy that can't be experienced unless you know Jesus. 
Righteousness, peace, joy of the Holy Spirit. Eric, what that is, that's about the subjective existential experience about that. Then other readers say, no, that's about the objective reality that before God we are righteous. The objective reality that we do have peace with God rather than war. By the way, if we don't know Jesus, it's war with God. And whether it's Gaza or whether it's Ukraine, war is bad. And the worst is with God in our soul. And Jesus came to bring peace and joy. The result of the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy. It's the objective reality of the gospel and knowing Jesus. Or it's both. And is it not both? It is both the objective reality of the wonder of the gospel and the subjective experience of embracing Jesus Christ. Righteousness, peace, joy in the Holy Spirit. Now, by the way, is Calvary full of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit? Are we full of rancor and division and judgment on each other? Remember, he starts, let us not pass judgment on one another. Is joy characteristic? of Calvary. It's characteristic of the kingdom of God. Well, finally then, we need a lifelong discipline of tutoring our conscience and righteousness. Now, the last couple of verses are read by many in Romans 14. It says, oh, okay, that's fine. A nice turn of phrase. I have no idea what it means. But what it's talking about is that God begins to work on our conscience. And as he works on our conscience, our conscience develops and we come to understand the true nature of righteousness we come to understand the true nature of holiness that holiness is not about what I don't do but about who God actually is and that holiness is a gift given to me that when received begins to reshape my own life And I behold as in a mirror the glory of the Lord and am changed from image to image. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 16 through 18. So we need the lifelong discipline of tutoring our conscience in righteousness. Eric, how do we figure out how to do that? How do we develop right conviction? Two words of instructions. First, We develop convictions with our Bible open and our knees bent before God. Look at verse 22. At first, when you read it, it's like, how does that fit here? What's going on? The faith you have, keep between yourself and God. Now, what's he saying? He is saying that we develop conviction with an open heart and an open Bible and a bent knee before God. And we make choices on how to live and develop our conviction before God. And it's something before God. He's already said in Romans 14, verse 5, each one should fully be convinced in his own mind. You will not stand before God for the choices I make in life. And I won't stand before you, but both of us will stand for the choices we have made and give an account before our Lord. So what we do is we open God's book, we bend our knees, and ask God to conform our life to his desires for us. And in God's great family, you have people all over the map at different areas of spiritual development and maturity. 
the faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. This week, I talked to Dave Stockman, who is in the hospital this morning. Need to pray for our brother, and we shall be this week. And um, they're helping him. He hopes to be out in a couple of days. Um, But he was talking to me about his walk with our Lord, and he said this. I thought of it when I came to this verse in 22. God has let me know as I have sought him. Eric, this is right. This is what I need to do. He just made a, a, a major life decision, and he was describing how he got to that conclusion. How do we find our way? Well, we don't watch people. We certainly don't watch TV and try to sort it out. We don't go to the Internet. There's a billion and more voices out there that will reinforce anything that you want to do, especially your own indulgence and my own indulgence but all to have a renewed mind that is shaped by the word of God. We get our convictions from sharing time with the Lord. There's no tutor like Jesus. He's given us the spirit that guides us into all truth. How earnest are we at renewing our minds and shaping our conscience along the contour of the word of God? And what God has revealed in his book. Now we live life driven by a maturing conscience captured by the word of God. Verse 23, the implied challenge is to develop our conscience all of our days along the lines of the word of God. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Hear the word of the Lord. What is being said? Paul's describing the person who has a doubtful conscience. They've been saved away from this life of rabbit's foot idolatry and making all these sacrifices so their life would turn out well. And they just despise that meat. Paul said, if you despise that meat because of where you've been, don't you dare eat. Don't violate your conscience and eat it. That's his point. But then he says this, for whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Now he's describing a process through which a conscience, fever pitch attracted to the holiness of God, is guiding through the spirit of God's mediary work in the moment, guiding the life so that the convictions and the choices for living are conforming to the heart of God. Martin Luther in the Reformation was arrested. The books that he had written were put on a table in a disputation called the Diet of Worms. It's not enunciated. It looks like worms in English. I wish I could give it the German worms, but it doesn't sound right. He's before the great potentate of Europe, and he calls him up there and he says, Martin, are these your books? Yes. Will you recant? He says, I want to pray about this matter. He came back the next day and he said, Martin, are those your books? Yes. Will you recant? He said, I will not recant. Now remember, this is the potentate of Europe. I cannot recant. And then he said this, my conscience is captive to the word of God. Here I stand, so help me God. If we all have that resolve, we'll make the right choices in life. It's a conscience, groomed, 
trained, skilled. It's a lifelong process. We don't get there by 30. We don't get there by 50. We never finish. We keep developing all of our lives. To what is our conscience captive? To what is our conscience looking for for direction? Verse 23 describes a process where an informed conscience is prompting our will to choose righteousness in life and offer to God a God-pleasing life. Take my life and let it be the old gospel hymn has a line in there, moving at the impulse of thy love. Mature followers of Jesus Christ move at the impulse of the Holy Spirit through their conscience that's been groomed along the rails of what God has revealed about himself and his holiness. It's also a mistake to violate our own conscience. Here, this passage has talked primarily about don't violate someone else's conscience as you use your freedom. Now he closes the chapter saying, don't you violate your conscience by making decisions that are not in conformity to your purpose to live a holy life. It is the mature follower of Jesus that can get on well with the immature and the developing because they're committed to walk in love with them. Who are we at Calvary? Is there room here to grow up in Christ? How tolerant are you of people who do not share our convictions? Do we judge them? Let's leave the judging to God and get on with loving others and build each other up and have peace and grow forward. That's the burden of Romans 14, 13 through 23. Let's not violate our conscience, but live the beatitude that's shown here. Did you hear the beatitude that's here? Yeah, there's a beatitude in Romans 14. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. You say, Eric, what in the world, what kind of blessedness is that? That's the person who has so yielded his conscience to the Lord that he is totally, she is totally free. Not burdened by guilt, not stepping outside of the bounds for our good of what God has ordained for us, but living right in the main of this good way following Jesus and in the total freedom of that has nothing in their conscience that's pushing back against them. That's what kind of place we want to be. And it'll be that place if we also give room for others whose conscience is not at that place yet to develop by loving them for whom Christ died and giving ourselves to righteousness, peace, joy in the Holy Spirit, and making that the big issues that bring us together. Heavenly Father, use the word of God in our lives to bring peace and harmony and unity in our family. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.